stand with me as we call upon our God to come and meet with us and bless us. Now, Father, we come now to Your Word, and we do pray for Your special abiding presence. Enlightenment. Lord, we pray that You would glorify Yourself in us. That Your Word would resonate and be received in us. Lord, give us hearts to receive it, minds to comprehend it. Give us a desire to obey it and to live it out. Lord, may we be tokens of a true and genuine faith of those who love Christ, love His Word, love His kingdom, and love His people. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of the living God. I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. Now we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, last week we identified this portion of God's Word as an exhortation. It's an exhortation. Now, the Word itself is not found in the context, but that's ex- it's what it is. Paul is exhorting these believers in those things that they are doing well. And the purpose of an exhortation is to encourage Further goodness and godliness. I mean, that's what exhortations do. You don't exhort someone when they're doing wrong. You rebuke them. You admonish the wrongdoer. Why? Because you want him to stop or her to stop what they're doing and to change their course of action. But an exhortation is a word given in order to... uh, increase or maintain that which is good. And so this is an exhortation. Paul wants the church at Thessalonica to continue doing the good work of faith. Now last week we looked at a way 
in which they were glorifying God and building up the church. And we saw that in the increase of grace. That is, they were increasing in those graces that had been given to them by the Holy Spirit who was, who was indwelling them. And notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. If we're going to be glorifying to God as church members, those who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves, are we increasing in grace? Are we increasing in God's grace? We need to be... We need to be mindful that that's something we should be doing. And we need to be honest with ourselves. And we last week looked at several ways we can know that we are increasing in God's grace. No reason to go over those this morning. But this morning I want to deal with a second encouragement and a second aspect of this encouragement that Paul points out that should also be an indicator for us or at least a, a, a point that we can interact with and ask ourselves again, are we glorifying God? Are we bringing glory to God's name? And are we edifying the church at large, the church body, the body of Jesus Christ on earth by our perseverance that is are we edifying each other are we growing as we continue to address and deal with things in our own lives are we are we making use of these things in order to bring glory to God and edify the the broader body of the Lord Jesus Christ now we got to ask ourselves this and notice what Paul says because this morning we are going to focus on verses four and five Four and five. Let's look at those two verses. Paul says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Now, now, brothers and sisters, it's important to note that Paul and Silas and Timothy in the providence of God had placed a large deposit in Thessalonica. They were, had been persecuted. They had been driven out of various synagogues and they found themselves at Thessalonica where the gospel had been received, where they had been received. And, and God in His goodness had planted a church there. Now that deposit was a deposit of God's word and grace. Every church is that deposit. Every church is a visible witness to a deposit of truth and grace. That is true churches, not false ones. And what is the responsibility or obligation for those who are the recipients of that deposit of grace and truth? Well, it's to take it and to put it into action. 
It's to take that deposit of that preaching and teaching ministry that the Holy Spirit confirms that we, that we who have the Holy Spirit in us witness and, and, and uh, testify to the truth of God. We take that, we put it into practice, and then by doing so, we are visible expressions of God's goodness and grace. Now that's what every church is. Now Paul here, in order to encourage them, in order to, to, to have them increasing, that is not growing weary and doing good, they were, being, they were suffering. And what does a persecuted, afflicted, and a suffering people want to do? They want to draw back, right? That's what a persecuted and a suffering and afflicted people do. They want to withdraw. And we have several epistles in the New Testament that address and deal with it. This is one of them. We have James, the book of James. It deals with trials and tribulations. We have Peter written. We have the book of Hebrews written. And one of the things that these epistles all want to point out is that there is a tendency for those who have become distressed and discouraged not to press onward and upward in Christ, but backward, backsliding. And Paul wants to encourage them not to backslide, not to withdraw. What do we want to do when we withdraw? We put up our own protection barriers. We want to protect ourselves, right? That's what we want to do. See, we're taking our eyes off of Christ and we're putting them on our circumstances and ourselves and we want to withdraw and we want to build up walls around us because we're going to protect ourselves. We're going to, we're going to watch over ourselves instead of wearing the armor of God's grace. Instead of depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, instead of depending upon Christ who sits at the right hand of God as our prophet, priest, and king, who is managing and overseeing and overruling and overriding all for God's glory, we want to do it ourselves. And the strength of this congregation was that for the most part, not everyone, because Paul does have to address those who are rebellious. And those who are rebellious are those who don't heed the apostles' word. Those who don't obey God's word. Okay? Paul says they are rebellious. So we need to understand something. That Paul wants them to continue fighting the good fight. He wants to see them continue and press on, increasing in these graces and edifying the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first point I want to make to you this morning is how their continued faithfulness to the apostles' teaching and example brought great joy and example to the, to the church at large. Okay, that's the important. That through the apostles' teaching and ministry, the Thessalonians continued to demonstrate faithfulness following the apostles' example because remember how Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to them through suffering, through being persecuted. Remember, they had been in jail in Philippi. They had been whipped. They had been scourged. They had been thrown in the bottom of the jail. 
And so they were very familiar. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he says, You know how we came to you in the midst of great persecution. And you followed, you loved us so much and loved the Lord and His kingdom that you followed along with our example. That is knowing that, hey, if we were going to suffer for the kingdom of God, you were going to suffer for the kingdom of God as well. And they were following along. And we can see how this brings great encouragement to the church. Look at verse 4 with me. Notice what the apostle says. He says, we ourselves boast. Or notice what um, the NASB says. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly, proudly of you. The New King James talks about boasting of them, that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. Now, what I want you to understand here, this is not, the idea here is not the apostle saying, hey, we're just speaking about you to other places and um and we're bragging on you. This is not just this is not just some braggadocious comments made. That's not the idea here. Why? Well, because the word that's used in the Greek is a far greater gives a far greater idea and purpose than just braggadocious speech. Paul's not saying, "Hey, I've been bragging on you to other people." That's not what he's saying. Paul strengthens this by pointing out the communion they have with one another. Notice what he says. For we, now notice what he says up in verse 3, because there's a continuing thought here. For we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Now go down to verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches. That idea is the, ter- is the term of communion. Household. It's the Greek word for house, household, communion, relationships. Paul is saying we we are obligated to give thanks to God and to talk about your faithfulness to the brothers at large because of your perseverance. We should do this. Why? Because we are members of one another. You know what a household is, right? A household is a place where people are related. They, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a family, right? Families live in households. They are related. They're connected with one another. That's why it's, 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 it's simply just evil for people to live in communion in a, in a family and to act as if they, what they do, what they say, how they care, has no effect upon the people around them. Just as it affects a family, you know, my 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 daddy would enforce or uh, remind me by enforcing the rule: be careful what you do out in public, because it's going to affect us. Careful how you treat people. Careful what you owe people, because it's going to affect us. Now, isn't that true in a church? Isn't that just, is it, because remember now, a church is not a club. This is not the Lions Club, okay? 
This is not some civic group that we've just we've agreed to come together to do good works. No, this is an organic institution established and kept by Jesus Christ. That we agree to come into by what? A profession of faith. When we come professing the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, what are we saying? He's Lord. He's King. He's boss. He has the the right to command of me all that He wills. Now we all confess that He's wise and good and gracious and merciful. And if He's wise, why why do we have a problem with what He asks? Commands. If he's all wise, if he's all good, why do we have a problem with his commandments? If he's all gracious and he's all merciful, why do we have a problem with his commandments? I mean, if you were going to obey anybody, wouldn't you want to obey somebody's infinite in wisdom, goodness, mercy, and truth? Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We profess as believers to come in communion with Christ and one another in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. To participate in all of these graces and gifts that he has bestowed upon the church for his greater glory and our edification. Now what does edification mean? The word edify means to build. Simply like you were going to build a house. If you're going to build a house, you don't start out by installing the windows or the door. You've got to have a foundation. You've got to have walls. Okay, you got to have something to put the windows in. And the, and the Holy Spirit loves to use analogies and pictures to help us understand our role in the church. That's why we're called a building. The walls are connected to the windows and the windows to the walls and the doors to the walls. And there's, there's all the parts make up the whole. We're called a body, right? We're a body. The fingers connected to the the palm, the hand. The hands connected to the wrist and the elbow and the arm and the shoulder. And and we are members. You can't hit your pinky and not hurt all over, so to speak. If you have a toothache, you hurt all over. It affects the whole person. So there are these analogies and there are these illustrations that the Holy Spirit uses in order to impress upon us as a visible church, as a body of professing believers that what? We have connection with one another. We're all connected to Christ who is the head and because we're connected to Him, we are connected to each other. And Paul says that we boast, we have this, we have this communion with you that we are talking about with other churches. Why? Because Paul wants these other churches to see their faithfulness and emulate it. They have, a, they have an impact. The Thessalonican Christians, those Thessalonian Christians, have an impact on the other churches in their region because they are enduring afflictions faithfully to encourage these other Christians to endure their afflictions as well. There's a connection. Notice the emphasis here. There is an emphasis on the apostles boasting. Paul says, we ourselves. Now, I think there is something important to note here. And that is, oftentimes when we wish to um, approve of ourselves, 
often we go to our peers, don't we? We, we go to those that we are sort of equals with and we say, you know, how am I doing? And they all say, hey, I think you're doing great. But notice who's given the accommodation. We apostles. We ourselves. Notice and recognize your steadfastness and faithfulness. And so in our communion with you, we are obligated to speak of this to the other broader body of Christ. Now, it's important, beloved. Here the apostle, seasoned in affliction, seasoned in suffering, seasoned in the theology and doctrine and truth, what is he doing? They are the ones accommodating. They are the ones giving accommodation to those who are doing well. I, I don't want to discourage you from receiving accolades from your peers. Uh, that's, that's useful. It's needed. But those who teach you, those who, to, who spiritually rule over you in the Lord Jesus, they ought to be the ones that recognize the faithfulness and give commendation. See, it's important. You know, because what are we doing? When, when those who are abiding in the truth are preaching and uh, performing the ministry of God's Word, those are the ones that are, that are recognizing that this is, this is good and genuine. Because there's something to this that we need to make sure we understand. And it's seen in how Paul describes uh, this, this boasting or this, this idea of edifying the broader church. Notice what he says. He says, for your patience and faith. This boasting was in accord to their faith, uh, with their faith. It was not just those common traits that we find among all people. That is, they just weren't strong, industrious, stoic people. You know, bring on all the bad. I can handle it. Here these spiritual ministers of God's grace recognizing that this is not human ingenuity. This is not the common human prevailing, human spirit prevailing. We hear that today, don't we? Oh, the, the prevailing human spirit. Now, I mean, it can be used in any group or whatever. You know, this prevailing, the uh, you know, uh, human spirit overcoming all this. No, that's not what this is. These are ministers of God's grace recognizing that what they are witnessing is God working in them for the greater good of the body and the glory of His name. And that's why He mentions here, for your patience and faith. If you're going to have somebody commend you, particularly in the church, what would you want them to commend you for? Grace. Obedience. Submissiveness, right? As you yield yourself to the teaching of God's Word. Notice what he says. He says, for your patience and faith. What's this thing? What is this patience? The word patience, is an, it's a noun. And it's important to recognize this because what Paul is dealing with is a character trait. He's not dealing with them being patient, a verb. 
He's dealing with their character. That is, they have already, in a few years of being a church, being a new church in Jesus Christ, they have already developed a consistency of staying the course. They have developed a characteristic of obedience and submissiveness to the teaching of God's Word. And Paul calls this patience. They're waiting upon the Lord. They're not drawing back, building walls around themselves to protect themselves. They are receiving the affliction. They are receiving the suffering and the persecution. It's all personal. It's all real. It's not make-believe. It's, it's, it's a tangible thing in their lives. And yet, what are they doing? They are continuing to give themselves over to the ministry of grace, to the ministry of the Word, making application of it in their lives. And they are increasing in God's grace. They are edifying the broader church. They are glorifying to God's name. And guess what? They are developing a characteristic of patience. Paul says, we commend you because you have been patient in these trials. Now notice the source of this patience is faith. Faith. That is, that is it's, it's not any type of patience. And Paul makes that comment because he says, for what you're suffering for. Why were they suffering? For the kingdom of God. They were suffering for the kingdom of God. That's another thing of saying they were suffering for the glory of God. They were suffering for the, the truth of God's word. They were suffering for all of, uh, uh, for who God is and what God has revealed about himself. And he says, and in all of this, you have developed a character trait of patience. And we are, we are, bragging that is we are expressing this to other bodies of your patience and what was the root of that their faith faith here is the root of all of God's grace in our lives just as it was the root in their lives that is without faith beloved it's impossible to please God faith is not just that outward expression it's not just that outward expression we make when we join a church, but it should be an outward expression of an inward reality. Right? When we express faith in Christ, we're hoping and desiring for that to be the reality of our own heart. That we truly do trust and believe and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation in eternity. And that faith that principle working in us by the Holy Spirit produces what? Love, joy, peace, patience. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, I know, you know, that. listen, one... One of the thing, or one of the several things we have going against us as an American Christian is that that prevailing uh, uh, individual principle of America. I mean, it, we're just individuals. It's all about us. If we don't like something, if we don't want to do something, I mean, you can't make me. We, that is, that is, there is an there is an extreme emphasis upon the individual, or even upon the individual family. Against the good of the whole. And that causes the church in America to suffer greatly. 
And yet what we need to understand, instead of looking at a situation and saying, oh, I'd never take that, oh, I would never tolerate that, or I would never endure that kind of suffering. I'd tell them off, or I would want to get some vengeance, or I would want to get retribution myself. Because, I mean, look at all of the movies and the, the, the TV shows that all are fixated upon what? Revenge. Revenge. Bunches of them. Because we, in the flesh, delight in taking our own retribution. In the flesh, that is, in our human fallenness, we want to give somebody payback. But that's not what's going on here. They had learned to rest in God's grace by the teaching of His Word. They are resting in the apostles' teaching. They are resting in the ministry of the outward church. And they are giving themselves over to this ministry and graces. And they are doing what? They are exhibiting the trait of patience as they what? Wait on Jesus Christ to come and to bring his own retribution. Isn't that what the, chap- isn't that, that's what the chapter says? Notice what Paul says in the broader context. Look at verse Six, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. What is Paul doing there? Paul is encouraging them to what? Stay the course. Stay the course. God knows your afflictions. God knows your suffering. He knows who's mistreated you. He knows who's wronged you. He knows who's cheated you. He knows who's brought great scandal upon a church. And guess what? God is going to bring in Christ his own retribution. Be patient. And they were. And they were. They were, this patience was the outward, that outward manifestation of that true and genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, we often want to talk about believing and trusting in Jesus. And, and when we say that, we're saying, well, I can trust Jesus to bring me to heaven, but I don't trust Jesus to take care of Monday through Sunday. I can trust Jesus for eternity, but I can't trust Jesus in my relationships. I, I can't trust Jesus in the, the common daily outworkings of the human life. And yet that's kind of what we do when we begin to build the walls and, and uh, you know, act in our own accord and understanding versus giving and continuing to submit ourselves to the teaching of God's Word, the leading of the Holy Spirit. What do you think the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to do? Be an individual? And in, not an individual, we're all individuals, but in an individuality that opposes the common good of the church? No, the Holy Spirit ain't going to lead you to disobey the Word of God. Notice the context of this patience and what makes it such a a reason for Paul and the other uh, teachers of the gospel to celebrate that among the other churches, if you will. Notice what Paul says. He says their persecutions. There are three words Paul uses to highlight their difficulty. Now, I want you to point that out to you. Paul could have easily said persecutions. But he didn't just say persecutions. Notice what he says. He says that we, uh, in verse 4, 
uh, your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. And then look at verse 6, or look at verse 5, the end of it. For which indeed you are suffering. Paul uses three distinct words to describe their circumstance. What's this word persecution mean? It means to be illy treated. That's what it means. It means to be treated wrongfully. It means to be treated harshly. It means to be um, be treated unkindly. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 11. You'll see the idea being used here as well in chapter 11. In verse 25, um, you can see the idea here being used of the author of Hebrews to Moses in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 25, that endure ill treatment. That's the word for persecutions Paul uses here. Now, what is he saying? How does that passage help us understand? Well, what did Moses do? Moses looked at how the Egyptians were mistreating the Hebrews, right? Hardly feeding them, whipping them, hardly giving them all this, any supplies they needed to accomplish their task, and then placing upon them unreasonable burdens of duty and labor and making them accomplish that. What, what the author is saying is, Here Moses looks at that situation and then he says to himself, I would rather be treated like them than to have the pleasures of Egypt and know God. I would rather know God and be treated this way than to have the pleasures of Egypt and not know God. Paul points out and highlights that they were mistreated. They were a mistreated people. That means, brothers and sisters, that their family members, possible family members, friends, neighbors, had was beginning were had started already mistreating them because they had become Christians. They had already been mistreated because they had turned their backs upon the gods of the day, Zeus and all these various gods. They were not participating in all the celebrations and worship of Zeus and all the other gods of the day. And that brought them to be ridiculed and made fun of, but, but still treated illy. That is, oh, well, I'm not even going to pay you back your money because you, are, you believe in God. The second word he uses is tribulations. What is tribulations? What's this word convey? It, converts, it conveys the idea of pressure and distress. Matthew, in his gospel, chapter 13, talks about how the the stress and the pressures of the world causes people who make a profession of Christ to fall away. Distress. The pressures of life. The pressures of being a Christian in a world that doesn't like Jesus Christ, doesn't want Jesus Christ. Tribulations is those pressures. Then what? What the idea here is a lot of psychological pressure, distress. That's inward. 
there are the things that we have to think about. If I do this, I won't be respected. Or if I do this, I won't be received. If I say these things, I won't be considered, uh, you know, um, uh, knowledgeable or, you know, whatever the case may be, depending on your groups that you, that you have dealings with, right? It's psychological. It's inward. Because of this inward distress and pressure, people fall away from the faith. They, they turn their backs on it. They walk away. And Paul says, you've shown patience. You have kept up the course. You have given yourself over. You've not allowed the pressure and distress of all that you're going through psychologically, inwardly, to have an ill effect upon you. The third word is the word suffer. Now this is a verb. Those other two are nouns. Giving a description of what they're going through. But this is a a verb. Paul says that they are what? Suffering. They are suffering. What does it mean to suffer here? It means anguish and pain. You know what? What happens when people we care about turns their back on us? What happens when family and friends scoff and treat us rudely and illy because we now are Christians and we want to keep the Lord's Day. We want to go to church on the Lord's Day instead of the lake or whatever. What happens when all those things begin to happen when we show our new convictions? What pain. Because we don't want to be at odds with people we care about. We don't want to be at odds with people we care, we love and, and, and people that we do genuinely have concern for. It's It's painful. And guess what? They were suffering this. But they didn't allow that suffering to have a negative or ill effect upon their glorifying of God. They didn't say, you know what? It's not worth God's glory for me to suffer this way. No. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Notice what Paul goes on to say. In verse 5. That this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. Now what does this mean? What is Paul saying here? Well, what Paul is saying here, he says, listen, this is, this, this patience this obedience, this, this, the, the, the faithfulness that you are enduring, uh, this, um, this steadfastness that you are exhibiting, guess what? It's evidence. It's evidence. It's a token. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of what? Paul says, of God's righteous judgment of you, that you are worthy of the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that. When the church endures hardships, persecutions, afflictions, Paul says that they that 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 this 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 patience, that this endurance, is a sign of something greater. 
It's a token. It's a symbol. That is when God's people abide upon her faithfully. They don't seek their own retribution. When they wait patiently upon the hand and the power of God to be manifested on their behalf, they are but symbols of God's enduring love and grace. That they are tokens of God's love and, and divine Divine pleasure that He would have them as tokens of being worthy of His kingdom. That they are manifestations of my power and love. What a picture. What a picture, brothers and sisters. That is, listen, what's the whole point of Satan? bringing great affliction to the body of Christ. Oh, he hates the body of Christ. He wants to afflict it. He wants to punish it. He wants to, he wants to destroy it. And what's his whole purpose? If he, he wants to get, discourage you, right? Distress you. He wants to get you to apostatize. He wants to get you to leave the faith. He wants you to say to yourself, this isn't worth it. It's not worth it. I can be, hey, guess what? I'll just be a private Christian. But see, in that private Christianity, how does God get the glory for that? Because how are you a visible token? See, God receives that glory when we watch stand visible and open as a symbol and a token to the world that what? We are the recipients of God's power and grace. And we're not going to run and hide. We're going to exhibit patience. Because guess what? We not only do this for the glory of God, but we do this for our brothers and sisters sitting next to us. Because if I run and hide, how's that going to affect you? If my pastor runs, how's that going to affect you? If the elders run and hide, what are you going to do? Right? What if the what if the other grown ups in the church? What if you grown ups, right? Y'all run and hide. You you respond illy to the distress. What does that teach the young people in the church? When they see their elders, their grown-ups acting in a selfish manner, what does that teach the young people in the church to do? You see, beloved, we need to be mindful that we are, as God's people, particularly, so particular when we are undergoing hardships, sufferings, Afflictions that people are watching us. You are watching one another. You're watching one another. People recognize. They see. They see. We know this. We realize this. This is a common truth. It's a common reality of any fellowship, of any group, of any, particularly a church that calls itself a family, an organization, a body, a building that's connected to one another. And how we respond and act in these situations has a direct impact upon the person sitting next to us. How many times have we recognized someone that's distressed and we said, oh, they're struggling? Now we pray for them. But we need to encourage them. We need to encourage them. We need to, to, to encourage them to do what? Increase in the graces of God. Don't draw back. Don't draw back. Exhibit patience.
It's an emphatic statement, what Paul is saying here in verse 5 when he says, it's the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It's an emphatic statement. What does that mean? It means it's placed in the first aspect of this Greek clause in order to highlight the emphasis. Because in Greek, word order doesn't matter. It's not like English. But what the Greek writers would do is they would place certain words in the front of a clause to highlight it or embolden it. And so what Paul is saying is, he says, your patience, your visible patience. This is what everybody can see. Your abiding, this faith you have in Christ is evidenced in your patience. He says, This is noticeable and recognizable, and it's the manifest evidence and proof that God has approved of you. That's great. Because, you know, we wonder. we We want approval, don't we? But whose approval do we seek? Whose approval do we seek? Well, they're recognizing. Paul is saying, you have received by your patience an increase of grace. God's approval. That's glorious that we can know we have God's approval. But how do we know we have God's approval? Are we increasing in grace? Have we developed a characteristic of patience? Are we waiting upon the Lord to work? Are we waiting upon the Lord to act? Are we trying to build walls around ourselves? Are we trying to protect ourselves? Are we willing to to wait upon the hand of the Lord to come and be our defender? You know, that's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Particularly when you're being maligned, right? When people are lying about you, it's biblical to state the truth. It's biblical to say it's not true. I'm not guilty of those things. Biblical. It's when you go beyond that, it becomes unbiblical. When you begin to persecute that person for saying those things instead of waiting upon God to vindicate you, you can state your, you should state your innocence. You should defend your good name. You should be able to stand and say, that's not true. But when we go beyond that and begin to punish and to give retribution instead of waiting on God to do it, That's when we have sinned. Paul says that their patience and increasing grace is a visible token or evidence or proof that God has approved of them. They're patient. Not just any activity. Let me give you the... um, Let me show you the negative of this. Go back in your Bibles to Philippians. Go back a few books to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to show you the negative of this. Look at verse 28. Well, let me back up to verse 27. I want you to see the negative. That is, in Thessalonians, we see the positive. That is, that their faithfulness is the evidence of God's approval. But look at this one. Verse 27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Notice what Paul says. When, as they stand in the truth of the gospel, guess what? It's a token. That's the word used there. It's proof of what? Their salvation. But look at the negative. When you oppose the gospel, when you oppose the truth, when you oppose Jesus Christ, when you oppose His kingdom, when you oppose God's grace, when you oppose the church and all this, it's also a manifestation of what? Your destruction. That is, by the way we live, we can manifest and give evidence to our eternity. Heaven or hell, how we live. Isn't that something? How we live right now, how we react, how we respond, how we make use of or don't make use of these graces all bear witness and give evidence to where we're going to spend eternity. Now let me say something about this. I mean, I I, I think this is reasonable, right? There's a lot of people that say they're going to heaven. They don't like to worship. Go figure. They don't like to sing God's praises. They don't like to meet with God's people. They don't like to fellowship and commune with God's people. They don't really like the preaching of God's Word. They don't like to read the Bible. I've heard people say, professing believers, I don't really like to read the Bible. They don't like the things of God. But let me ask you this. You're not going to like heaven, right? How in the world, if you don't like the things of God here, how in the world do you think you're going to like that extreme of all of that there? Where there is the full manifestation of God's glory and God's will. How is that going to be possible? Well, it's not possible. Because brothers and sisters, what I'm here to tell you, this sermon this morning is teaching us that all of that's a manifestation of their destruction. Hell is going to be filled with people that don't want to worship. That don't want to obey. That don't want to read the Word of God. That don't want anything to do with God's Word. They don't like the preaching of the Gospel. They don't like the teaching of God's Word. Hell is going to be filled with people that doesn't doesn't desire the kingdom of God. What does all this mean for us? Well, I think there are some applications here. First of all, brothers and sisters, we need to be mindful that we, because we believe in Christ together, We are members of one another. We have communion with one another. How do we have communion with one another? Because we believe in the same Lord and Savior. We believe in the same Christ. But what is manifested in most places is that sort of everybody has their own Jesus. Because everybody's doing their own thing. But that's not the picture of Scripture. We believe in the Jesus taught in the Word of God. Therefore, we all have a common Lord and Savior. Therefore, we have a communion, commonality with one another. If there is no commonality with one another, if there is no communion with the saints, there is no communion with the head of the saints. I hope you will understand that. One of the manifestations we see in all of Scripture is when there is a communion with God, there's communion with His people. 
Cain hated Abel. Abel communed with God. Cain did not. And instead of dealing with his guilty conscience and repenting of his sins, Cain kills his brother. We see Noah, the days of Noah, eight members of the church. The church was eight members strong. How did God show his retribution? How did he preserve God's people in the days of Noah? How did he do that? How did he save them? He brought great calamity and destruction upon the whole earth, cleansing the whole earth of those who what? Did not love him and love his church. That's a, that's a, that is a fact of history. That is a fact. And in the destruction of the wicked, the righteous were saved in an earthly sense. Now, brothers and sisters, we could go through all the Scripture and see examples of this. But how we commune with one another has a direct bearing upon the truth and reality of our communion with the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, look with me at 1 Thessalonians. I mean, there are so many scriptures we could look at, but I'll look at this one here. Verse 11 and 14. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. What is Paul doing? Paul is reminding us that we have communion and responsibilities and obligations and duties to one another. We have duties to one another. And when we don't perform those duties, the church suffers. His glory suffers in that, in the sense that, that we ought to bring glory to God through our obedience. We are bound by a holy fellowship and communion. Why? Our profession of faith does this. You know, we take vows, right? Vows of church membership obligating us to one another, don't we? Because we believe they're biblical and true. We believe they're biblical and right. Let me ask you this. Did God give you the Holy Spirit for you to keep it to yourself? To keep His gifts and graces to yourself? Did He give you the Holy Spirit so that you could just close yourself off from the body of Christ and do nothing? No. He gave you certain gifts and talents so that you would use it to edify and build up one another. Guess what? Those gifts are for the greater good of the body of Christ. You know what's so good about that? My gifts belong to you. Your gifts belong to me. We all belong to one another. But what happens? What happens if I don't exercise my gifts? Who suffers? You will suffer. If I don't perform my responsibilities and take my duty seriously, if I don't exercise my gift of teaching and preaching, how does that affect the body? It has a negative effect upon the body. When we fail to exercise our gifts and graces in Christ, we fail to bring Him glory and we fail to build up the body of Jesus Christ. And you young people have a role too. 
Believe it or not, adults are encouraged when they can see you doing what you're supposed to be doing. When you can walk up to an adult and say, thank you for your faithfulness. It means something. When you can walk up to these young people and say, you know what, I've noticed your steadfastness. Thank you so much. It matters. It's important. And we should be doing it. The Lord Jesus taught in the Gospel of John. He said, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Now let me say this about this communion. We ought to teach the importance of the communion of the saints and the role we have to edify and build up one another so emphatically and so um, tenaciously that we should all sit back and ask this one question. Well, what do you mean? Is my truck your truck? Is, Is my house your house? Is my bank account your bank account? You say, what do you mean, Pastor? That is because all we see in Scripture is the outward flowing of grace and love to the church, whatever was in need. How was Paul able to go to Thessalonica and minister? Because people were giving money. They were investing in other churches. They were investing in those, the body of believers. Their people were giving. The, the church in Philippi had been given money for the Apostle Paul to minister in Thessalonica. Listen, our common fellowship ought to be taught so tenaciously that we have to say, no, you don't have access to my vehicle. That is, it's mine. My house, you can't just walk into the house and just treat it as your own. No, these are personal property. But guess what? What we see is a picture in Scripture of such an ardent, faithful love for one another. We would ask the question. I hope that makes sense to you. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul taught free grace so that salvation was by grace alone. Guess what people started doing? Sinning. And Paul had to come back and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. It's by grace you have been saved. But let me tell you something. You've been saved out of sin. Paul had to come back and teach them that lawlessness was unacceptable. Paul taught such a grace-filled gospel, he had to come back and deal with licentiousness. And we ought to teach such communion of the saints that we have to deal with. No, we all have personal property. But there is a communion of the saints, brothers and sisters, that I think we miss and suffer from. Because we're too individualistic. And we're too concerned about ourselves. And we've built up too many personal walls because we're not trusting Christ to protect us. And we're not being patient to wait on His own retribution. May this word find its place in our hearts. Let's pray.